following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take your Bibles and open up with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. This morning, we begin a somewhat controversial series of studies on the grace of God. By controversial, I mean that whenever these matters are discussed and have been discussed, they have a tendency to give rise to public disagreement. That's certainly been the case for well over 500 years. But I want you to understand that I'm typically not one, and I think you know that, to be drawn and attracted to controversy for the sake of controversy. I was reminded of the words of the late Walter Martin, perhaps better known as the Bible Answer Man, who once said that controversy for the sake of controversy is sin. Controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. Perhaps you're hearing this and you're thinking, what in the world could be so controversial about the grace of God? The grace of God. After all, that's a hymn that we all sing. One of the most comforting of all of God's attributes, we sing the hymn, Amazing Grace. A hymn that even lost people in our world memorize and sing and claim to love. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This controversy has to do with just how much of our salvation is attributed to God's grace. That's the matter. How much of our salvation is attributed to God's grace and God's grace alone? Some claim that every aspect of our conversion to Christ is rooted in the grace of God, while others, to be fair, claim that God's grace leads us up to a certain point, but then steps back, as it were, and allows the sinner to be the one to make that decisive choice to follow Jesus. And if he or she does, well, grace is there from that point on to guide them the rest of the way home. It's like coming to the river, you're led up to the river, but you have to cross that river Well, grace steps back. It's brought you up to a certain point. You cross the river and it's waiting for you on the other side to carry you home. This controversy has to do with the grace of God, the nature of grace, the extent of grace, the design of grace, and the power of God's grace. Historically, these doctrines have been referred to as the five points of Calvinism because they were deduced by the students of the French reformer, John Calvin, after his death. I personally prefer to refer to these teachings as the doctrines of grace. 
because I don't connect them back to John Calvin. I see them dripping from the pages of the Bible, which is why I preach them and love them. In fact, I came to believe and be fully convinced of everything that we'll be studying in these coming weeks without reading a single word from John Calvin. And so I rest in these truths because I believe them to be biblical. Now, again, you know me, and I feel like I can appeal to you the way the Apostle Paul appealed to those among whom and for whom he labored for so long. You have my track record in this church of what I have preached and have desired to preach every week from this pulpit for over a decade now. As a norm, we spend our time making our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's just what we do. I believe that's the best approach to preaching. I've sought to preach the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word. And my commitment to you over the next few weeks is to aim to do the same, to communicate to you what the word of God teaches regarding the grace of God. That's my commitment to you. However, that's not the only commitment that should be present here as we gather. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be your commitment to do two things. Number one, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test everything and hold fast what is good. Measure what I say by the Bible. That's the standard. Test it by Scripture. And if what I'm saying is consistent with what the totality of Scripture teaches, there's one more thing you must do. Number two, submit yourself to God and to his word. You may not be able to explain and fully understand everything, but you can point to the word of God as your highest authority and say, it's true. And where else can we go? These are the words of eternal life. In my mind, as we make our way through this series the next few weeks, we are not simply embarking on a study of the five points of Calvinism. We are about to study the biblical doctrine of salvation. And to be even more specific, we are about to study the saving work of the triune God. That's one of the reasons I love these doctrines, is that they highlight and underscore and accentuate the gracious work of God the Father, of God the Son, and of God the Holy Spirit in bringing us from dust to glory. Before anything, before we move forward, before we dive into these matters, there's one foundational truth that ought to guide everything we do and everything we believe. It's the truth of God's sovereignty. The truth of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is defined as, quote, supreme power or authority. And so I point you to Isaiah chapter 46. Our focus will be verses 9 and 10, but I'd like to begin reading in verse 5 to give you some context. Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 5. 
The Lord speaking here. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Behold the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am God, he says, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The matter in this passage is the utter uniqueness of God. He is one of a kind He is in a class all by himself. He has no rival. He's unable to be compared to anyone or anything. This is our God. That's what it means for him to be God. There is none like him. That's verse 9. Well, then verse 10 explains why there is none like him. Look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Did you catch those two statements? God says, number one, I declare how things will go long before they happen. And number two, I declare things that will be done long before they happen. Things not yet done. A word that means accomplished. Things not yet accomplished. Things not yet performed. Things not yet executed. I declare them from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. He declares it. He speaks it forth. He knows it. God knows the future. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. I thought that you were going to touch on the sovereignty of God. Because so far, I'm okay. I'm comfortable with this. I can wrap my mind around this. He knows the future. You're highlighting the foreknowledge of God. He knows the future. Great. But what does that have to do with his sovereignty? Well, look at the last half of verse 10. We're not playing with words this morning. Look at the last half of verse 10. Saying, 
In other words, as I declare from the beginning, as I'm declaring what the future holds, I'm at the same time saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What he is saying is that he knows the future because he plans the future. He controls the future. He orchestrates the future. He accomplishes the future. My counsel shall stand. By the way, that word counsel there in the Hebrew is the same word translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as plan, purpose, and design. What God is saying here is that he declares the end from the beginning because he plans and purposes and designs everything that happens between the beginning and the end. My counsel shall stand. My plan shall stand. My purpose shall stand. My design shall stand. Why? Well, look at the last statement in verse 10. I will accomplish all my purpose. By the way, that's the same Hebrew word just used two lines above. Things not yet done. That's the same Hebrew word here as I will accomplish all my purpose. So he declares things not yet accomplished and says, I will accomplish all my purpose. And it's used again at the end of verse 11. I will do it. I will do it. So he declares from the beginning, the very beginning, things not yet done because he himself will accomplish those things. This means that the future isn't just known by God. It's planned and designed and accomplished by God. The past, the present, and the future, as we know it from our perspective, is the outworking of God's counsel here. It's the outworking and the accomplishment of his holy and perfect and all-wise will. That's why verse 11 ends the way it does. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. I will do it. In other words, his predictions and his prophecies that come through prophets, they come true because they are his purposes that he himself is performing. The prophets use the language of God performing his word. He prophesied it, predicted it, and then after that, he performs it. He accomplishes it. He does it. Now, I think it's safe to say that most people think of God merely as a divine fortune teller. That's it. And we're comfortable with that. Why? Because it allows them to just kind of sit back and tell us what's going to happen in the future. And most Christians don't have a problem leaving it at that. He's a cosmic crystal ball that just happens to know the future. But the God of the Bible isn't a heavenly fortune teller. He's the sovereign king of creation and history who knows what's coming because what's coming is the outworking of his counsel and his plan. And he, by his power, performs what he plans. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we are talking about God's authority and power and freedom 
to bring about all of his purposes, which he declares from the very beginning. I say it again. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we are talking about his authority and power and freedom to bring about all of his purposes, which he declares from the beginning. That's why Job, after everything he went through, can say in chapter 42, verse 2, when he says to God, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. It's another way of saying, I will accomplish all my purpose and none of my purposes will be thwarted. None of my purposes will be frustrated. That's absolute freedom there. That's absolute power there. When you purpose to do something and nothing gets in the way. Nothing. We don't have that. I can purpose to go home after this, but I can get, I, I can get hit by a, an 18-wheeler. I can purpose to greet you after the service, but a maniac could walk in the doors and blow me away with a shotgun. My purposes and plans can be thwarted. Not his. Not his. It's what it means to be God. The God of the Bible is sovereign. He plans and he performs. He decrees and then he carries out those decrees. All of creation, all of time, and all of history is his story. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is governing the universe. And there's none like him. That's why the Bible calls him the one and only sovereign. There are kings in this world, but they're not sovereign. They are governed by God. He appoints them as he wills. They might be filling the throne of a certain country, but they are not ruling with supreme freedom, authority, and power. There is only one sovereign, one potentate, one king. Now let's think through this a little bit more. When God says, I will accomplish all my purpose, that's his way of saying that nothing happens except what he purposes. Nothing happens except what he purposes. If something in the universe, for example, happens that God did not purpose to happen, God would say, I didn't purpose that to happen. And we, as his creatures, could ask him, well, what did you purpose to do? What did you purpose to take place? To which he would respond, I purposed this other event to take place, but it didn't take place. And we could all respond, but you say here in Isaiah 46.10 that you will accomplish all your purpose. Nothing happens except his purposes. You see, God's point is that absolutely nothing happens in time and space and history except what he plans and purposes. Now, in case you're confused, I'd like to, in the rest of our time together, do something way simpler than what we just did. Way simpler than trying to work out all the logical implications of what God is saying here. To be sure, there is a place for logic and reason when we come to the scriptures There's a place to deduce from the Bible all that we can draw out of it using reason and logic. However, we run the risk of resting too much on our reason and not enough on the clarity of the word of God. 
And so I want us to spend the rest of our time together this morning just letting God speak from his word to show us the breathtaking glory of his sovereignty. Because it is breathtaking when it hits you, when you see it, when you know it. Before we begin, I'd like to share a portion from the Elder Affirmation of Faith from Bethlehem Baptist Church. Some of this can be found in John Piper's new book called Providence, page 37. But listen to how these brothers describe the sovereignty of God. We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. We just read that in Isaiah 46. Point two, we believe that God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. And regarding salvation, they write, we believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace, which was given through his son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from the bondage of sin and be brought to repentance and saving faith in his son, Christ Jesus. With what we are about to read from God's word, and by the time we end this morning, some of you will be faced with an important question. Will you turn from your objections to his sovereign power and authority and bow the entirety of your person and life to him in humble submission? Or will you harden your heart and refuse to treasure this aspect of God, claiming that this can't be your God? Let me fill you in on something this morning. What we're talking about this morning is not a Calvinistic issue. This goes back beyond Calvin to take Scripture for what it says. This is not, while I'm an Arminian and I don't like that Calvinist language, this is not that this morning. Because even Calvinists have a hard time with what we're about to look at this morning. How do I know that? Because it rocked me recently. But let's just let God speak. Let's let his word set the tone for our beliefs and our behavior. Let's let God speak. A lot of people will walk away from such descriptions of God in today's world and 
say things like, well, that's not my God. And if that's the case, it may be that you will be faced for the very first time with the sobering realization that your God is an idol, one that you can understand, one that you're comfortable with, one that you can wrap your head around. But he's not the God of the Old and New Testament. He's not the God revealed supremely in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to consider this morning God's sovereignty under two main headings. Number one, his sovereignty over natural phenomena, over nature. And then secondly, we're going to consider his sovereignty over human affairs. Okay, so let's... Just think about God's sovereignty over the realms of nature, the universe, the world. He is sovereign over what we would consider random acts, random things that happen in the world. Let me tell you something. There's nothing random in this kind of universe with this kind of king on his throne. There's nothing random. There's nothing coincidental. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from Yahweh. Have we ever taken the time to let that sink in? Every time we roll the dice, every time we play a board game with our children, and we roll the dice, its every outcome is from the Lord. Some of you are saying, nah, that can't be. Let me tell you something. Your God is too small. That's the that's, that's truth. Every decision of Lot is from the Lord. He's sovereign over the smallest things. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them. <laughs> he points to the smallest, insignificant little bird that is almost just unrecognizable to man because it's just a common part of everyday life. There's birds that flutter and fly and they're just doing their thing. Jesus takes the smallest little flying creature here with feathers and says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He says, and not one of them, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one of them will hit that ground apart from your father. Now, I know to get around it, some people say, well, of course he knows when it's... It doesn't, it's not even talking about his knowledge here. When we talk about things happening apart from someone, it's someone's doing, someone's accomplishing. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from our father's sovereign will. How many sparrows are there in the world today? Do you take Jesus at his word? Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. And you can imagine the reaction of the audience there. Because he says in the very next verse, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This God who controls the universe not only numbers the stars, but has your very hairs all numbered, all of them, even Christian and me and everyone in this room. 
He knows the number of our hairs on our heads. His sovereignty is over all things we consider random, coincidental, and even the smallest insignificant things in this world, like sparrows. In Jonah chapter 1, the Lord appoints a fish to swallow this prophet. And he was there for three days and three nights. The Lord appointed a great fish, directed this great fish to do what he did. He is sovereign over the animal realm. Also, the plant realm, Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God caused this plant to provide shade in a rather quick fashion to shield Jonah from the sun. He's sovereign over the plant world. And then in the very next verse, he is sovereign over worms. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. This is to everything God appoints, directs, orchestrates. A fish, a plant, a worm, and now the east wind. The sun rose and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah recognized that this universe is governed by a sovereign God. I'm reminded of Isaiah 40, verse 26. We're talking about the number of our hairs. God says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Speaking of the stars, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. He knows where every star is in every galaxy and there are millions. And he's got it all under control. He rules. He reigns. He governs everything he created. Turn with me to Psalm 147, please. Psalm 147. Psalm 147, beginning in verse 15, notice what the psalmist tells us regarding God. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Remember, we're talking about God performing his purposes, carrying out his counsels. This is that. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. Every time there's a snow, every time there's ice, it's God scattering his crystals like crumbs to the earth. That's what's happening. Now, I'm, I'm all for the processes of nature and how things work and, and what science can teach us 
But behind it all, we know, based upon the word of God, that God is the one behind it all. Performing. Sending out his command. Sending out his word that he decreed from the beginning. Continuing on in verse 17. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. So, the midday heat to melt the snow that he just tossed onto the earth like a man would toss crumbs of bread to the ants. He sends out his word, he melts them, and he makes his wind blow and the waters flow. The wind is his wind, friends, and we know a lot of it here. We know that wind here come February, March, April. We know that wind. It's his wind. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise Yahweh. Turn with me to Job 37. Job 37. If you're in the book of Psalms, go left. Job chapter 37. If you want to have your breath taken away by the reality of God's sovereignty, I would encourage you to read from Job 36 to the end. Because God reveals himself there in a way that brings the intended result. Job humbles himself, puts his hand to his mouth, and repents in dust and ashes as God reveals his sovereign control over the universe. Job 37, beginning in verse 11, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. The lightning is his lightning. The clouds are his clouds. The snow is his snow. The wind is his wind. And it all comes forth by his command. He upholds the universe. We read about Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Verse 12. They turn around these lightning bolts and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. This God of ours controls every storm and every single lightning bolt. Knowing that, Gives great confidence. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards that I read about who would walk out in the midst of a lightning storm knowing that every lightning bolt was controlled by his sovereign God. And if it was his time to go, it was his time to go. Talk about instilling the fear of God in you by means of the natural world. It's his lightning. He commands them where to strike. Verse 13, listen. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. The same storm can bring immense blessing to this farmer who needs the water. But that same storm can, for punishment, for discipline, for correction, can bring discipline to another farmer who's been hardening his heart against God. Or if it's just for love. Or for his land. It's for no one. He knows that the land needs it. 
And so he does it. God caring for his creation. We are not talking about a distant God who is off on his throne simply telling the future. Friends, he controls the future. He directs the future. He has written out the future and is performing everything that happens. His purposes are coming to pass. Look at verse 14. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. That's what we are doing this morning. Considering the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind? Eventually he's going to say, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? Where were you? The same God who commands the winds is the same God who stills the wind. You read in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, Jesus awoke in the midst of this storm and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace! Be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm at his word, at his command. Peace be still. The wind stops and the raging waves are calm like a sea of glass. That is our God. We are not talking about issues of Reformed theology this morning. We are just looking at the Bible to tell us what is the meaning of this sovereign God who rules the earth. Who is he? And at times it can be uncomfortable because we can't wrap our minds around him. But if you could wrap your mind around him, would he be worthy of your worship? Would he be worthy of your praise? If you could explain and fully exhaust his wisdom, he controls it all. He controls everything. What about disasters? Amos chapter 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Sovereign over birth. Then the Lord said to him, Who is made? Man's mouth, Moses, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's sovereign over it all. He reigns over it all. Sovereign over life, sovereign over death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read this recently, James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And he stops. He says, yet you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
and do this or that. Your life is not in your hands. Your life is in the will of God. If he wills you to live tomorrow, you will live tomorrow. If he wills you to be taken to glory tomorrow, it's his will. You will be taken to glory tomorrow. That's what we ought to say. It doesn't say don't make plans. It just says you should preface everything with if the Lord wills, Lord willing, God willing, we will live and do this or that. It's not if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It's if he wills, we will live and then do this or that. Because you can only do this or that if you're alive, right? Job said one, Job one twenty one. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 104, please. Psalm 104. I want you to see how intimately acquainted and involved God is in governing the natural world. Psalm 104 begins on a note of praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Notice all the present tense. He does it. He does it. He does it. Notice verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. Going a little bit deeper now into this created world, he says, verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. It's amazing. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of God's work. Going a little bit deeper, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Why does grass grow the way it does? Well, because we water it and because, you know, behind it all is this ultimate first cause. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Not only for the livestock, but notice you cause plants to grow for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The point behind that is that you cause it, verse 14. You bring it about. You perform it. You execute it. You accomplish it. Is your God too small to fit into this category? 
The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, verse 16. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are for a refuge, our refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. God provides for his creatures. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. And again, you can't help but praise. Verse, four, verse 24, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. He's looking at the natural world in all that happens, and he says, your works. How manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. You've accomplished them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. This is our sovereign God ruling over his creation. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Strong indication here that God does all of this joyfully. Joyfully providing rain. Joyfully causing grass to come up. Joyfully bringing forth gushes of streams and rivers of water for his creation. Joyfully bringing about these things so that people have bread and wine and oil for their face to shine because they're made in his image. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. What's the response to that? Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. All right. So he's sovereign over nature, sovereign over creation and the governing of this world. Absolutely sovereign. Accomplishing all his purposes. Nothing happening except his will. What about man? What about human affairs? What about when it comes to mankind's matters? Matters of mankind. Well, it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, that he changes times and seasons. And listen to this. He removes kings and sets up kings. I don't know who will be president next time around, but I guarantee you that that president will not be sovereign. He himself will be ruled and overruled by God, the God of heaven, who gives him authority, or in our day, perhaps her authority. He removes kings and he sets up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Why are people smarter than others? Because of God. Why are people, why, 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 why are some wise, full of knowledge? It comes from him. It comes from him. He grants that. In Daniel 4.17, we read, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is the one who governs the governments. First Timothy chapter 2 calls us to pray for kings and to pray for rulers and to pray for all who are in authority. Why? How? How do we pray for them? At least this, that they may know that while they rule, they are being ruled. While they make laws, they themselves are subject to God. That they would know that Jesus is king and he's not sitting back on his throne you know, I already told the future, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to come to pass. No, he's intimately involved in the past, present, and future, accomplishing his sovereign purposes. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Wherever he will. Psalm 33, verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah 46, verse 9? My counsel, my design, my plans will stand. And it's affirmed here by the psalmist. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He is sovereign. Sovereign over it all. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. What about sin? What about our choices to sin? What about when it seems like God's not in control? Well, let's take the worst sin. Let's take the worst sin ever committed. The murder of the Son of God. The nations gathered. We read in Acts chapter 4. I want you to fall upon the sword. Go to Acts chapter 4 with me. You need to fall upon this yourself. Acts chapter 4. When people ask, how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free sinful choices of people, I have no better answer than to point to the cross. I could spend my time reasoning and trying to get to logical conclusions, but at the end of the day, I can go only so far as Scripture goes. And listen to this. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John before the council for preaching in the name of Christ. The church lifts up their voices after they were released and they pray this. Look at verse 24, Acts chapter 4. And when they heard it, 
they, the church, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And now listen to this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Who was gathered? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, probably in allusion to the soldiers, and the peoples of Israel. Notice this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was it sinful? Absolutely sinful. Did God bring about his judgment upon Israel for rejecting their Messiah? Did he hold them accountable? Yes. Read about 70 AD. God sends Titus, the Roman ruler, and levels Jerusalem, burns down the temple, destroys it. Jesus predicted that, that that would happen because of their rejection of him. Was it sin? Was it wretched? Was it wicked? Yes, but was it according to the predestined plan of God? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place? If if your view, your theology doesn't allow for a completely sovereign God and a responsible mankind, the problem's not with the Bible, the problem's with you. If there is no room for the sovereignty of God and the choices of men, then there's no room for the cross. There's no room for Calvary. There's no savior for us. The cross was the display of God's predetermined plan. It was the outworking of his counsel the outworking of his purposes, the outworking of his divine decree of what would happen. He knew the future, predicted the future, Isaiah 53, because he would himself govern that future. Was Judas fully responsible? Yes. Was Caius and Caiaphas and Annas, were they fully responsible for doing what they did? Absolutely. Did God hold them accountable? Yes. Was it the predetermined plan of God? Yes. And if you think that you have to have that figured out, let me tell you, you're wrong. God rules. He reigns with sovereign power and freedom. This is our God. This is our God. 
what we're looking at this morning, even before we get into talking about total depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement or particular redemption and irresistible grace and the preservation or perseverance of the saints is the foundational truth that God is absolutely sovereign. He rules from heaven. He does according to all his will in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He knows the future because he's ordained the future. You say, good, bad things have happened to me. Let me tell you, if you're in Christ, you can say, looking over your dark history, the world meant it for evil. Satan meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Isn't that what we learned from Genesis chapter 50? The story of Joseph gets sold into Egypt, sold into slavery. Wicked act on the part of his brothers. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it, designed it, planned it for good. And with that, we submit to God. That's what it means to submit. It doesn't mean, you need to explain yourself to me. I'm the clay, you're the potter. You need to explain yourself to me. No, to submit is to say, I see it, Lord. I don't fully understand it, but I know this is you because this is what your word tells me. This is what your word teaches. This was taught by the prophets. This was taught by the Lord Jesus himself. Every hair of our head is numbered. Not a single sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the Father. What about salvation? We're talking about God being sovereign over the affairs of of men. Well, we just read it in Ephesians chapter 1. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. If we can look at creation around us, nature around us, and with the psalmist say, Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. My soul knows it very well. How glorious are your works. When it comes to the Christian, do we say, Well, that's the work of me. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are God's workmanship. Just like when he clothes the lilies of the field, just like when he causes the grass to grow, those are his beautiful manifold works. So you, Christian, when you blossomed from the graveyard and new life was given you and you cried out in faith and you cried out in repentance and he heard you, all of that was his work. All of that was his work. We're going to get into these things the next few weeks, but if, God, if, you, if you mean to tell me that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw you believing and saw you repenting, you know what you really saw? What he really saw was him giving you the gift of repentance and him giving you the gift of faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 2 Timothy 2.25, who grants repentance? Who grants metanoia? Who grants a change of mind? It's God. God grants people repentance. So if you tell me that God looked down the corridors of time, again, simply fortune teller, he looks down and he sees, ah, that person repented and believed. Biblically, that can't happen because if there's repentance and faith, it's because God wrought it. God brought it to pass. God accomplished it, gave it. 
as the flowers of the field testify of God's glory, so when you blossom into newness of life, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is sovereign over nature, sovereign over the affairs of man, and sovereign over salvation as we're going to see in the next, in the next few weeks. We ought to stand in awe of the sovereign authority and freedom and wisdom and power of God. To stand in awe of it. To realize that every time a sparrow falls in the Gila forest, every time something happens in these Oregon mountains, it's God at work. God at work. There's no random things. There's no accidents. There's no coincidences. Everything from the sparrow to the galaxy to the stars that can swallow our earth are named and governed by our sovereign God. We should never trifle with life. It's a gift from God. We ought to marvel at our own salvation, that God brought it to pass. God gave us these gifts of repentance and faith, awakened us when we were dead in our sin, gave us life in Christ and through Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Why are we even in Christ? Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Of him, you are in Christ Jesus. If God is sovereign, as we're reading today, this should embolden our prayers. Embolden our prayers. If he can control the movements of nations and the movements of the weather, why would we not cry out to him in prayer? Why would we not plead with him to save our lost loved ones? You see, this is something I find fascinating, is that some people, their theology is better in their prayer life than it is when you're talking to them. Because they plead and they pray, oh God, save my loved one. They don't pray, God, please bring them up to the water. I know you can't make them drink. But bring them up to that point. I know you don't have any control after that, but just bring them up to that point. No one prays that way. What do we pray? Lord, save him. Save her. Let them see that they are dust, that they are feeble, that they are frail, that your life, that their life is, is in your hands. Let them see Christ as the radiance of your beauty and glory. Give them the light of the, the knowledge of your glory in the face of Christ. Shine that in their hearts. We don't then say, but I know, Lord, you don't have that. I know you don't do that. But uh, if, you could just, if you could just be a cheerleader with me, just like cheering them on to make that choice, to do that. No one prays like that. No one prays like that. We pray that God would grant them newness of life. Life in Christ. This emboldens our prayers, knowing the sovereignty of God. Let us also rejoice that our evangelism will not be in vain. Our evangelism will not be in vain. If God ordains all things and has elect people out there, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, it is not useless for you to lift up the name of Christ in the workplace and in the school and in the family. He has a people, they will hear his voice. They will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling them, and they will come out of the wilderness of sin, and they will be gathered with the flock of Christ. And it will be his doing. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. 
He is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. And finally, the truth of God's sovereignty, again, aside from the Calvinism stuff, aside from the Arminian stuff, aside from the doctrines of grace, just taking God as sovereign from the pages of the word of God, these realities should cause us to be calm, to be still, knowing that his purposes will come to pass in my life and his purposes are good. His purposes will glorify Christ, which is what we all want. His purposes are glorious. None of his purposes can be thwarted. Spurgeon said this, and I'll read it from your bulletin. There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almondry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. God on his throne that we trust. For me personally, when I read these verses of God being sovereign, controlling the universe, from subatomic particles to distant galaxies to use the old illustration from R.C. Sproul if there's one maverick molecule out there then God's not over it he rules every single thing let me ask you this what kind of God do you want what kind of God do you want what kind of God do you need The Bible comes to us and presents a God who controls the winds and the waves in nature, but also the winds and the storms of our own lives. He's able to bear us up, able to sustain us, able to bend heaven to earth just for one of his people. That's the kind of God we have. We can throw our lives upon him. We can throw our eternity on him because he reigns supreme. I think one of the reasons people hate the doctrine of God's sovereignty is because it threatens man's control. Again, that's the meaning of submission, is we're not in control, but we submit to you, God. We don't understand it, but we submit. We bow ourselves underneath your sovereignty. We're scared of losing control. We're scared of not being in control. 
And there's situations, there's times in our lives when stuff happens and we are reminded of the stark reality that we are not in control. We, are, we were never in control. We like to think we're in control, but we were never in control. You know, this past, was it October, November, um, took a few of the boys hunting. And as we were driving back um, on those dirt roads, don't tell this to my wife, um, I let my five-year-old in my lap to drive the vehicle. Um, who wouldn't do that, right? And, you know, we're going five, ten miles an hour. And, um, you know, just the, his face, you know, that, uh, that feeling of being in control of the wheel as daddy's pressing the gas. He really was never in control. He had his hand on the wheel. He had his face looking out that windshield, but he was never in control. I was in control the whole time. And that's exactly what I think is going on in this world. Is your willing important? It's very important. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the Lord Jesus or a non-Christ. Will you turn and live? Will you remain in your sin and die? That's infinitely important. None of what we covered today cancels that out. Spurgeon said, I'm not going to try to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We don't, they're, they're perfectly compatible within the Bible. We find both truths. And the trouble we get into is when we try to elevate one truth at the expense of another. Lift up this one truth at the expense of another. They both go together. Is it important that you choose? Yes. But who's in the choosing? Who's involved in the choosing? It's God. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that it is God who works in us to what? To will and to work for his good pleasure, for his sovereign purposes, for his counsel that shall stand. He's in the willing. So for those of you who are in Christ, continue to will and work for his good pleasure. And for those of you who are not in Christ, if you desire eternal life, the offer stands. You come and take it, and it's yours. Jesus said, I will never turn away anyone who comes to me. I'll raise them up on the last day. Come to him and find life. Let's pray.